0: episode three of Outrageous Love, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening in while you are on a stroll in your car or just relaxing wherever you are. This is your host, Dr. Holly or Shiraki. You can really call me anything you like, but asshole. That's what I always say. I'm fine with either with either Shiraki or Dr. Holly. I am honored to have a very, very special guest today. Dr. Berlinda Breguet, Navajo educator and leader. She will not only be sharing her journey with us, but also shedding some light on Navajo Nation. This is our third episode, and I'm grateful for your subscription and listening and just vibing our collective energy energy around the journeys of responsiveness, which is what this podcast is about. Before I bring on Berlinda, I must address the issue that is before us as a country, and that is the murder of George Floyd and the current protest and uprisings, which is occurring in over seventy-five cities right now in our country. My intention was to delve more into how we define and describe the journey to responsiveness just as a way of better informing those of you who are new to VAB Nation. But the circumstances dictate that we save that for the next time. Right now, Los Angeles, where I'm where I'm located and from, is under curfew. This curfew is worse than the COVID-19 stay-at-home order because nothing is opened once the curfew starts. It's fascinating to me that the pandemic has all but gone from the headlines. For seven days, I have not seen a ticker of case or deaths related to Corona-19, nothing. If we wanted to stop the virus, we should have had curfews because the streets are pretty much empty after 6 p.m. now. And it goes to show how the media is really in control of our information that we receive and how quickly things can change in terms of our society, in terms of being open or not. For me, this is a deja vu all over again. If you recall, my journey to responsiveness began in 1992, the year of the Rodney King uprising in Los Angeles. So what is more sickening than how George Floyd was killed on camera is that we can go back almost 30 years and have the killings of African-Americans primarily and others on video and very little has changed. This is the most hurtful part. In addition to seeing what we all have seen on that video, we must do something different this time. We must. I have been thinking and feeling what can I do differently in in any way possible to bring change to make a difference. What can we do as culturally responsive educators to promote healing, change, transformation, transformation for our students? I strongly believe that the solution lies with the young before us, the ones out there protesting now, and I'm still formulating how best to support teachers as we head back to the classrooms virtually or not come August and September. Here's what I've come up with thus far. First, we have to acknowledge the issue head on. There have been previous instances where things have happened where I feel like we haven't we haven't addressed it head on. We've just talked about it and then we've moved on. We can't do that this time. We must address the issue of police brutality and racism, particularly with African-Americans. And we need to say it out loud and continue to say it. I don't think we should drown it in the context of systemic racism, even though systemic racism exists. But what we're dealing with right now is in particular an issue that needs to be solved, and that is police, brutali- police brutality. we got to allow people to give voice, allow for emoting, and we got to listen more than talk. we gotta be, we got to play the role of listeners more than talkers in this situation. I'm saying as if you are in a position to work with educators or as teachers working with students, do we need more conversations? I say yes and no. The no is if we're going to be saying the same things over and over that we've already said, but nothing has changed, then I say no more conversations. The interesting thing about Minnesota with it being the epicenter is that I know firsthand that that the educators there have received a ton of professional development and learning on race. An abundance of conversations have occurred, based but based on what we saw, what was evidenced in, during this week, and this is being recorded um, during the week of the of the uprisings, is that is that conversations obviously have not been working. Very little has changed. We have to acknowledge this issue head on. And at the same time, we have to transfer the, the, the professional development and professional learning and all those conversations to action to change. My point is, it's time to start doing and stop talking. So I'm not for us coming together, having these grand discussions, these grand conversations. I'm not for everybody getting in a room, sharing their pain. I'm not for every, you know, having affinity groups and all of that. I'm for us coming together and and talking about what are we going to do constructively to do change? So that goes to my second point. My second point is that we need a call to action. And when I say we, I'm talking about CLR educators. I'm talking about VAB Nation. I'm talking about those of us who work with educators and the teachers who work with students. We need a call to action. And this call to action has to be on an individual basis as well as an institutional basis. Now, I don't have a list of call to actions, but I do want us all to reflect upon what can we do as individuals to bring change, to do action. It could be as simple as voting. It could be as simple... As starting our our own uh, organization or starting our own network. And then there are things that we can do institutionally, such as we could commit to looking at the curriculum in a different way where we don't only talk about mainstream history and mainstream authors. And we commit to reading authors of color for the entire year, in essence, put a moratorium on mainstream curriculum, and then look through the lens of people who have been oppressed in the United States, and that guide our history, that guide our English, that guide our 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 focus on math and science. That's what I mean by institutional, something that will change the course immediately. And I've always said, even before this incident, that if we really wanted to make a difference, if we really wanted to do something different, it could occur with a stroke of a pen With a with a voting of a policy within districts and things could change tomorrow. Now is the time to make that change for for whatever reason. It hasn't been made before. Third, I'm saying educate. This is our opportunity to educate our students or those who need to be educated about the history of police brutality in the United States. To talk about the differences between a protest, a demonstration, a boycott, a march, I think our young people need to understand the difference in how each one is meant to bring back, bring about a different result. I think that this is an opportunity once again to explore authors of color who can bring new perspectives to this topic, and that we not kind of fold back into reading the same old same same old same ones. And then not really doing anything about it. So I think that education still remains um, important and it is a viable action during this time that we that we educate ourselves, especially to those who don't know about the history, who don't know about um, the some of the tactics and maneuvers and strategies of the great movements like the civil rights movement. It's an opportunity to educate. So, where I am right now, in a, in in all the pain and sadness and just looking at what's going on, I think that we all have to come together and think about what can we do on an individual basis and then what we can do institutionally. And if you have ideas about what that means, please please share them via social media or you can email me directly at shiraki at culturallyresponsive dot org. Your ideas for how we can acknowledge the issue, call to action, and then educate the ignorant. Now, let's bring on Dr. Begay. But first, we got to affirm ourselves. So you know the first thing to do. Tell your faces that you're happy. That's right. Pull down your mask and smile at somebody. Remember that this happiness is not a literal happiness. It is about your spirit, your energy, your vibe, and the belief that all will be good in the end. Next, I want you to affirm yourself, affirm yourself, right? And I want you to put your hero hat or cape on. What I mean by that is I think you're going to affirm ourselves by by acknowledging that we are not in the need of a single person to lead right now, right? That's one of the powerful uh, elements of the Black Lives Matter. There's not a single leader, right? What it's really saying is that What we're really saying is that each of us can be a hero because we all have superpowers. So I want you now to affirm yourself, put your super, your hero hat, mask, or cape on. And then I want you to tell yourself your superpower and how are you going to use that superpower to bring change, to make a difference? We are all heroes in this and we can all play the role of hero individually. What's your superpower? My superpower is bringing clarity. That's what I believe. That's how I'm affirming myself. My superpower is to bring clarity because once we have clarity, then we can get to agreement. Maybe, maybe not. But more more importantly, we can move towards acceptance. But if we don't have clarity, then it leads to confusion. So my superpower is bringing clarity. What's your superpower? And I want you just to say it out loud. My superpower is, right? and then use that superpower to bring change because we are in need of hero we're in need of everyday heroes right now not a single person just to be clear i'm not I'm, what i'm saying is we don't need to depend on joe biden we for darn sure no we can't depend on what's going on in washington right now so the idea that a single person or a single thing is going to bring a difference this is the definition of insanity We all have to do this. And that starts with you knowing what you can do. So what's your superpower? The last affirmation is to show love to others. And now I'm going to ask you to show some love to someone you differ with, even disagree with about issues of race, culture, politics. I want you to reach out to that person and try to at least reach clarity, if not agreement. There has to be somebody in your family, your neighbor, maybe an old friend where you're not seeing things the same way regarding this issue or other issues. So show them some love, reach out to them, have a conversation with the singular goal of clarity. Those are our three affirmations. Now we're ready to bring on our guests. I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Belinda Begay, who's a citizen of the Navajo Nation. She has taught grades K through 12 plus and is currently an adjunct faculty with Fort Lewis College. Her graduate and undergraduate degrees are specific to Navajo bilingual bicultural education with the emphasis on multiculturalism. She also has a second um, degree as an administrator to Navajo children and working specifically Navajo children. And her her doctoral doctoral work is in the same field of Navajo language as well. She currently works for the Central Consolidated School District. Um, and I'll let she's going to talk about that position. And um, that's where I, I actually met um, Berlinda long ago. She was a, a teacher at the time and she came to my session in New Mexico. And I want to give a shout out to New Mexico. Great state, great place. Please go visit it. Very, um, very rich in culture and tradition. And I've been working with the New Mexico Department of Education for several years. And Berlinda was uh, in my session as a teacher from Central Consolidated School District. She made it happen, cultural responsiveness as we define it in her classroom. And then years later, what, three or four years later, she calls me out to her district this past year to work with her educators there, and it's been one of the greatest experiences of my professional career. So with that said, please, please, please join me in welcoming Dr. Belinda Begay. Hi, Dr. Shiraki. Thank you
1: for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, from what I understand, this is this is uh, your first podcast, so this must be exciting, right? I feel like uh, I'm part of history here, uh, bringing you into the podcast technology world, and this, and I'm excited that you know you have the opportunity to kind of share your story and also give VAB Nation some insight about Navajo Nation, and not just in terms of the pandemic, but just. Overall, and I'm going to have you start by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you think it's related to culture responsiveness in terms of your own life story.
1: Um, I'm not sure how many um, of the listeners are um, Navajo, but I'm just going to do my protocol of how I was taught to introduce myself to the world or the, the, um, entities out there. And, um, I just want to say to my, um, native people as well. And that was, um, something I wanted to share as part of, um, indigenous, um, upbringing, I guess, um, and that's part of um, CLRI in terms of something to know about um, Indigenous children and students is to know um, their background. And in my case, um, the way we're taught is to introduce ourselves in our language to the cosmic and the earthly entities. Um, that's how they, they know us. And so that's what I just did. And um, I live in a very small community on the Navajo Nation called Red Mesa, Arizona. And it's very close to the Four Corners area. But I was um, raised in another community where I also attended school called Rock Point, Arizona. And that's not far from where I currently live. And the way our indigenous teachings um, go is that your roots really stem from your grandparents. In our case with our Navajo society, it's um, matrilineal, meaning that um, our society stems from our matrilineal clan. And so the homelands where I currently reside belong to the um, matrilineal clan of my grandparents, my grandmother especially. And so I was blessed to have moved back here and to be among the um, footprints of my ancestors here. And I just wanted to um, share uh, some of Indigenous teachings there. But I did grow up in another community, like I stated, and um, that community really um, was the birthplace of Where I am today, because the school that I attended at that time was a true Navajo bilingual school. Meaning, at that time that that school was developed in the early 1960s, it was one of the five that was created during the um, Indian Self Determination Act in terms of having the federal government give our people our um, nations, the right to come up with their own type of school. And so Rock Point Community School was one of the five schools that incorporated Navajo language and culture as a true bilingual, bicultural school at that time, meaning that a lot of the speakers at that time were um, highly proficient to fluent speaker's um, with the Navajo language and so with the curriculum they also included our language and culture side by side with um, western concepts and so they included a lot of our oral traditional teachings and a lot of our traditional teachings in terms of philosophy and ethics and principles and so That's the type of school that I attended there. And they also taught us how to read and write our language. And um, so that school really prepared and built that foundation for me to um, really reinforce my home teachings as well. And if you ever come across any type of indigenous research, you'll always. Um, have that school come up, Rock Point Community School, because we were one of the five schools who were excelling academically, even with our assessments. And it was really um, owed to the fact that it was um, bilingual and bicultural. At that time, but today, I guess you would use the word culturally-linguistic relevance um, so I know what CLR means because that's the type of school I attended. But I was raised in a humble home with um, my father, who's the only person that worked. My mom was a homemaker. I grew up uh, with five siblings. And um, the language was our primary language used at home and in the family, extended family and activities and ceremonies and the schools at that time. And so um, Navajo is my first language.
0: I'm going to jump now to our uh, journey to responsiveness questions. These are sort of plots along the way that I think anyone who's on this journey have to have had, and they end up being really great stories. And so I want you to think now of your time, you know, on the being an educator in the classroom, in schools, and let us know, what was your light bulb moment? When did you know from the teacher side of it, that there were really, um, there was a plan A, that your plan A was not going to work and that you were going to need a plan B. And it literally caused you to teach in a different way, even though you were coming from sort of an enlightened perspective already because you lived it. But at the same time that we all have to make that next level adjustment. So what was the next level adjustment for you as it applied to issues of race, culture, language, and so forth?
1: Okay. So in college, I always thought I wanted to be an engineer, but that didn't turn out to be the case as I kept failing my math and science courses. And because of that, I end up um, leaving school because of grades. So I end up um, taking on a job so I could have funding to go back to school because I lost my scholarship due to bad grades and those classes. And that's um, job happened to be a teacher assistant at a, um, a school on the Navajo Nation. And the teacher assistant was really helping in terms of um, helping students with Navajo language. And so somewhere in that, I realized that that's where I was gifted That was what I liked because it just came to me naturally. And so I um, took classes on that and I went forward and received my degree in that. And um, I went back to the nation to be teacher. And as a certified teacher um, on the Navajo Nation, I came in with all different types of um, ideas and uh, all gung-ho about implementing um, the strategies they teach you. And But my light bulb moment came in the fact that a lot of our students came from different backgrounds, even though They are Navajo students. They came from different socioeconomic status. And so based on that, there was more of a survival mode of a mindset among parents and some of the students. Because the survival mode, meaning that the school is where it provided um, warmth and food and safety and um, academics was really not a place where um, it was deemed important at that time versus survival. And so that was um, my light bulb moment for me because um, I was naive in the fact that I was raised in a, um, a home that provided the opposite it was nurturing. I had a mother and a father. Um, I we, know, we were never hungry, even though I guess we were deemed poor, but I never thought of us as poor. But um, that was my light bulb moment there. So academics was really not important at that time, rather than the fact that survival was. So in that sense, it was more trying to Um, come up with ways to work with parents and then making school fun for these students to let them know that it can be fun. So Mm -hmm. um, that, that I think that was my first light bulb moment Mm -hmm. in in that sense. My second light bulb moment was um, a school that I taught with um, our Navajo Immersion Program and so it was really a school within a school and so we were in one section of a school and everybody knew that it was the Navajo Immersion Program and so um, we had our own Navajo students who were not in the program who always referred to our students as the Navajo kids, not knowing that they were Navajo themselves. And so I realized that the um, cultural identity that that was very um, off, that the teachings of our way of life, our, you know, that, that assimilation is doing its job or has done its job and so that was another light bulb moment and really was also a precursor to my dissertation as well
0: so you're saying that they were sort of talking against the navajo kids not even realizing that they were navajo themselves sort of what they call that internalized oppression yes as you know, we do the rings of culture. Um, I don't have to explain them to you. Um, so I'm just going to jump right to it. Give us, think of two of the rings that you can share, um, culturally about yourself. Um, you know, that you think would sort of deepen our knowledge, not only about you, but also about Navajo and you can pick any two of the ones that we focus on.
1: Um, the first one is easy. It's ethnicity. And that really goes back to who I am, uh, being grounded in that, where I come from as a um, Navajo woman, especially being, coming from a matrilineal society. And um, that's easy for me to say. But the second one, I've been trying to figure out really um, which one it would be. And it it, it was challenging. So I I have to say that ethnicity is the one that I really, truly relate to. So, But when I look at the other rings, it's really challenging because when I relate to some of those, um, it really goes back to Western concepts for me. And um, as an Indigenous person, as a Navajo woman... um, which is how many of our Navajo um, people think of themselves, especially with the younger generation, too. We're really walking in two worlds. We have our Navajo world and then we have the Western world. And so that's a unique part of us. But to the Western world and lens, it's seen as a deficit, which um, many don't understand. So um yeah so that's kind of how I was viewing the rings of culture when I was looking at that and I w- I was thinking well what about age because with our with our um culture and our society um we really value our elderly they are our pillars of who we are and so we have Um, that value. I mean, they are our history books. They are the um, keepers of what we still have today remaining within our culture. And so um, I guess that's the um, closest that I could relate to, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And in terms of that ethnic identity, is there anything in particular that you think culturally you would want Vab Nation to know in terms of being Navajo, um, that you think it would be a good sort of takeaway for us? Any kind of tradition, norm, uh, you know, something that, you know, would kind of give us give us uh a, a gestalt of um your ethnic identity.
1: A lot of um Indigenous people are portrayed by Hollywood, how we are, and that doesn't help and so a lot of what the world knows a lot of what the nation knows today of indigenous people um, probably number one would identify um, with casinos. Um, number two would be the long hair feathers. Um, whooping around on horses. And, you know, that's just Hollywood played a big part in how the nation and the world sees um, us as Indigenous people. But we really do have a history, a, a traumatic history that continues to be um, passed on um, intergenerationally. And and we, we see that as intergenerational trauma is how we portray that and we still see that up up to this to today and our people really are resilient people um we've we've had centuries of oppression and assimilation even up to this to 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 today um but what how the media portrays us is not how it really is. Even like with um, today, with the COVID, um, with the new CNN reporting, um, various parts of the Navajo Nation, um, when they just show certain parts that are somewhat true, and I guess that's how media works. And that's really not the overall true picture of who we are as Navajo people that's just a small part of it but really we're resilient people in in terms of all that we've been through and in terms of education um the assimilation process that we were um given or uh, was forced upon us you know that still um in effect today within the Western school systems. But in that, that resiliency continues to happen. And so I, I view myself too um, when, when it comes to this, because in today's Western lens with education, a lot of it is portrayed um, to academic success based on test results. And for um, indigenous people, that's, that's really not the case. It's more um, we have a different um, concept of education. And so for us, it's more um, to reinforce the values that were once um, taught from the home and was very strong in terms of how to be a strong person, how to be resilient and how to overcome things. But a lot of that is lost today too um, because of the assimilation um, processes. And based on that, I always say that um, we're not um, identified based on test scores. And so even myself, I went as far as you can in the Western education system um, with standardized test scores that were very low, but that didn't define who I am. Uh, And that's why I always tell my own children and my own nieces and nephews, as well as my students and this Navajo children I advocate for, you are not defined by test scores. And so uh, with today's, um, our Navajo children, it's really based a lot on resiliency. You know, we can put so many programs in place, but it's that resiliency from all these concepts that I mentioned that allows them to either become successful or um, they continue forward, even though um, they're in different types of challenging situations. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to um, let people know. Even today with my own colleagues and peers that I work with who are non-Native, I continue to advocate on their behalf, because in their eyes, academic success is based on their Western um, eyes and lens. And so, for example, when we discuss academic success for program planning or implementation, and I know you you heard this yourself at one of our trainings, um, that a lot of our children living on the nation don't have running water and electricity. And so... What does that have to do with academic success? What does that have to do with um, that resiliency? They still finish school, a majority of them, based on that resiliency they have. Even myself, and that's what I ask them. I live in a hogan. I don't have running water. So based on that, do you see me as poor? Do you see me as somebody who cannot succeed in anything. Mm. And so that's how I ask them and they don't say anything. So mm. what's the point of bringing that up when that's not a factor in in academic success and this so-called academic success?
0: Wow. Yeah. Um, let me ask you... The next question, Um, just thank you for sharing that. It's just uh, very powerful. And you're right. I heard I heard that so many times when I was um, doing the work there in your district. And it's just it's really um, it's that again, it's that deficit. It's that deficit orientation, you know, um, that we have to overcome with with, with some educators. Um, Let's talk about situational appropriateness. Right. Because, you know, the crux of our work is that ultimately There are certain cultural contexts that require certain cultural linguistic behaviors that um, we want our students to understand. But we want them to understand it without having to feel like they have to give up who they are in any way. Culture, language, that they can still be themselves yet exceed um, um, uh, have success in the context. And that could be the context of school culture, context of any, you know, I use the example of DMV, as you know, in my sessions, because it's very neutral. So I wanted you to give us an example where you think that you've practiced situational appropriateness either successfully or not successfully. Um, but you were conscious of the need to have the cultural linguistic behavior in place. But yet you didn't feel like you had to give up who you were.
1: Well, I I, I did do some examples as I was talking, like just growing up too. And, um, with my job, it's, I, I can think of so many examples, um, as, as a teacher and then as an administrator now, but really right now at this point, um, with my current job as a bilingual multicultural coordinator, um, in a large district that Has primarily um, Navajo students. um, A lot of it is just advocating um, in terms of um, our our students because 96% of our enrollment are Navajo students. And um, the district expands over a large area of the Navajo Nation in that area. Um, So the situational appropriateness. for the positive part is really um, educating my colleagues and teachers that are non-native, even my own native people is educating them in terms of cultural linguistic relevance, and um, even just with our own culture education, linguistic education, um, and. And giving them that knowledge. And with the negative aspect is more in terms of dealing with the opposite of, of, of that type of thought, um, which it would be um, the deficit part. Having um, our students being thought of in that sense, um, because like me, like I said, I never thought I was poor because my father and da- uh, my mother, they they were married um, for 50, 60 years now. And wow. I was caught up in that type of a home where when I came home from school, mom was always there. Dad provided for us. I We never went hungry. We always had clothes and shoes. and um, But I guess... From others, based on today's um, guidelines, like with Title One and the socioeconomic status levels, um, I would have been deemed poor. But right. I, I never thought I was, and so um, in that sense, I have to um, advocate that on behalf of my navajo students too because a lot of our students don't think of themselves that way too
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah.
1: and so it's 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 like they talk about our student they meaning our non-native um um colleagues of mine who actually plan for our primarily navajo children and so um, with that mindset, you have to constantly do education and, um, advocacy on that part. Yeah. Otherwise, um, there's no voice on, in, in that sense.
0: Right. So true. So true. And, and we need, we need educators like you to be that advocate for, for your students. Um, and also in teaching other educators. Um, last thing here, um, Dr. Begay is um, give us a song, a poem, a piece of literature, or something that sort of thematically connects you to the cultural relevancy, cultural responsiveness, and and kind of kind of centers you with that. Um, and it can be a it can actually be anything, movie anything that's, uh, kind of in the arts in that way. Um, just give us the, you know, the title and why it's meaningful to you.
1: I I can only think of, um, what my grandfather, um, taught us. We were very blessed to have a, um, our grandfather, um, who's a Navajo philosopher. Um, he and my parents were strong proponents of, um, Having us um, go as far as we can with Western education because um, even with my parents, they didn't go far. They just had like fourth they just went up to fourth grade, but in their time, the education system was different um, um, with very strong assimilation um, processes and procedures when they went to school. And so with, with them, with strong, um, thoughts about Western education, the reason why they supported us in that was one, one time my, my grandfather, um, told us that, um, in, in our language, he, he said to us, um, my grandchildren, Um, I really want you to go as far as you can to challenge this Western education because we need you to undo what was done onto us, is what he said. Mm. So I always took that to heart and I always feel like that's what I am doing today and i try to live up to that standard
0: that's that's so timely with what's going on in our country right now because i think that we we need this next generation to undo what has been done and so um it's still it's apply it is it's applying in real time um and you certainly have done that and so i want to say thank you for sharing your culture, sharing your knowledge, sharing you. And I just want to thank you also for being uh, just part of the culturally responsive journey, bringing us to Central Consolidated Schools. And I look forward to continue the work with you.
1: Okay, Dr. Holly, I really appreciate you yourself too and your work and um, how we got to know each other as well. And I do appreciate that. And the knowledge and the skills that I learned from you as well. And it's more to, um, I guess, reaffirm and validate what I was um, raised with, too, and to continue that work
0: forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So once again, uh, let's give uh, Dr. Begay some love. I really appreciate uh, her coming on board to do this. She wasn't familiar with podcast. She told me that she had never even listened to a podcast before. This was her first time um, just getting into the technology. So I want to, I want to, I want to thank her for coming out of her comfort zone to share her message with us. Um, and it was very powerful, very impactful. There was so much there that I wanted to continue, but I kept looking at the clock, of course, because I know uh, a lot of y'all ain't gonna listen past uh, forty-five minutes. <laughs> so um, I had to. I wanted to uh, delve a little more there because she was just um, dropping some some real deep knowledge there. Um, there was a lot. Uh, there was a lot that was said regarding um, just just uh, the resiliency piece, and I think that's very important. It's another one of those terms that we've sort of created a buzzword and i like how she said it's so part of the navajo culture is that resiliency and it it, it's it supersedes you know standardized tests and all the things that we look for in traditional in a traditional educational setting um and so i really i really appreciate appreciated her talking about that and also you know i realized that you know the whole notion of kind of singling yourself out was uncomfortable for her. So, I, you know, I, I think she was kind of stretching herself culturally, which is why maybe we didn't hear some of the kind of real kind of specific, specific examples, because it's just not her personality. And then as well as um, the nature of, you know, me just being around Navajo educators, they, they, it's always brought back to the culture or brought back to the family or brought back to the community and no, so not so much about the individual. Um, so, um, what I want to do now is I want to thank you for uh, participating in this really uh, special edition now because of what we're going through in our country. And what I what I want to do is I want to end by just going through um, not every single death, but a lot of the murders that have occurred um, and we have them on tape or we have evidence of them and little a little bit. And very little has happened. And it's my way of honoring all all these folks and then also keeping us grounded on we have to make a change. We cannot continue to have these stories. Um, before I do that, though, I want to thank um, you for listening. I want to thank my um, my uh, my sound editor, Bob the Builder, and also let you know that we'll have another very special guest coming up in for the month of July but I'm going to keep it a surprise until that guest confirms as always and I want you to stay fabulous until that time and so we're gonna we're gonna just kind of fade out with me reading these names and the conditions that they were murdered Eric Gardner had just broken up a fight according to witness testimony. Ezel Ford was simply walking in his neighborhood. Michelle Cusso was changing the lock on her door on her home's door when police arrived to take her to a mental health facility. Tanisha Anderson was having a bad mental health episode and her brother called 911. Tamir Rice was playing in the park. Natasha McKinney was having a schizophrenic episode when she was tased in Fairfax, Virginia. Walter Scott was going to the auto parts store. Betty Jones entered the door to let Chicago police officers in to help her upstairs, to help her upstairs neighbor who had called 911 to resolve a domestic dispute. Philando Castile was driving home from dinner with his girlfriend. Botham Jean was eating ice cream in his living room in Dallas Tatiana Jefferson was babysitting her nephew at home in Fort Worth Texas Eric Reason was pulling into a parking spot at a local chicken and fish shop Dominique Clayton was sleeping in her bed Brianna Taylor was also asleep in her bed and George Floyd was at the grocery store